This week, New Hampshire is in the books. We'll take a look at what happened in the Granite State and prognosticate the Nevada caucuses. Plus, the State of the Trump Administration is another cabinet member on the way out of the White House. And liberal democracy in Europe post-Brexit. We'll have that and much more this week on One Whole Revolution. Podcast listeners, try something new there. We'll see how it works out uh, if we get any response from the audience. Brody Myers, Michael Wilcox on the other end of the telephone. Wally Milner may be joining us a little later on in the program. We shall see. Micah, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Brody? Doing quite well, thank you. Uh, we got a lot to talk about on this President's Day that we are recording. Let's just ask a quick question. We do. Uh, who's your favorite president, Micah? Honestly tough one um i think i'm gonna split that into two questions because i feel like it in my lifetime barack obama just because i think he's a really he was i think he'd got a lot done especially in terms of improving access to healthcare. and i think as i mentioned um, earlier when i was talking with you guys i think he really broadened he he planted the seeds for issues like immigration reform healthcare reform to be discussed in the way they are today so i think that's really cool in history you know, I think I'd have to say Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Man, uh, really complex figure who you know evolved into this, into this genuine, genuinely abolitionist figure. So, and was really an amazing wrestler. Fun fact: Abe Lincoln in three hundred wrestling matches lost just one time. Legend has it. So, uh, I won't say who my favorite president I agree with the most is because that's inappropriate for this show. I feel like, but I'm definitely most fascinated. Uh, by George H.W. Bush. I think he was a a pretty interesting president, had a very interesting administration. But let's look at what happened in New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders seemed to have a resounding, unsurprising victory in the Granite State. What kind of a boost do you think that provided him, Micah? Well, first, I think, you know, it's worth pointing out that resounding victory was, I think, you got, what, 25% of the vote, but it's still a very fractured primary, as many observers have said. I I say resounding in the fact... I say resounding in the fact that it was definitely his to take. It's not like Pete could really claim victory yes. there. Oh, and Very look tricky. at that. Wally Milner is joining us on the podcast right now. Wally, how are you? Hello, I'm good. I'm so sorry I'm late. I will admit I went out to get a haircut and completely forgot that this was happening. Hey. So now I am here. Uh, I hope I haven't missed too much, but I do have a nice new haircut. One word answer. <laughs> Very Who, cool. uh, who's your favorite president, Wally? I would Wally? just like to say... Uh, what was that, Brody? One word. Who's your favorite president? Or I guess it'd be one name. Oh, one. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. All right. Continue with your, your uh, answer, Mago. Well, I'm just going to say um, we said Bernie Sanders and immediately summoned Wally, so that was cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think Bernie cuts a lot of momentum coming out of New Hampshire because even with the Iowa drama, you know, there was kind of like the obvious conclusion of Iowa is okay. Either Bernie, San- Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg basically tied. Looks like one of them won. It already reaffirming the fact that Bernie Sanders has electoral strength. And then in New Hampshire, he clearly wins in a you know in a divided primary. Going into New Hampshire and South Carolina, it does wonders for his electability. So, Wally, Wally, what do you think? Uh, sorry, could you uh, repeat the question? Sorry, that's all right. Uh, Bernie Sanders seemed to have a resounding, and we say resounding by it was definitely his state to win. Oh, he won. Unsurprising victory mm. in the Granite State. What kind of a boost do you think uh, that provided him? Yes. Um, well, I think that, uh, I, I, I mean, the most immediate obvious boost is that he is winning. He's won the popular vote in Iowa. He's uh, now won New Hampshire comprehensively. I think both were by less than his campaign would have wanted. Um, I know I personally am a little bit nervous about the numbers, but at the end of the day, uh, he's got uh, 
he's got results. He's got uh, he's got numbers on the board. He is uh, just behind Pete Buttigieg and delegates, and he's got two wins. And I, if you're a Democrat and you're nervous about the primary, you're looking for who to rally around. You know Bernie Sanders' name. We know some seventy percent of Democrats like Bernie Sanders, and suddenly you're like, okay, well he's the guy this time. I think it gives him an incredible momentum going forward. It gives faith for people who are concerned that he couldn't win, and that was. As we've seen, the vast majority of Democrats are people who like Bernie Sanders, but for some other reason aren't planning to vote for him. And as he uh, begins to win states, those are people who are going to come over towards him. So, I mean, at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders has won the most votes in the first two states. And that is where you want to be as a candidate. Anyone trying to come up with other reasons around it is, I think, operating with maybe a little bit of cynical motive. Mike wasn't on. All right. Joe Biden had a disappointing, to say the least, finish in New Hampshire. Do you see a path forward for his campaign or for Liz, uh, Wally? Um, for Joe Biden, much more uh, than for Liz Warren. Um, so it's going to be difficult. We haven't seen a whole lot of polling from Nevada. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but uh, it uh, it seems as though Joe Biden has a has a quite decent chance of finishing um, above the uh, delegate threshold, or at least close to it, and um, ahead of one, perhaps both, of Pete uh, Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, um, which would uh, re recover from a, a lot of the damage. It would make him, again, one of the more viable candidates. And then we would go into South Carolina, where we've seen consistently Joe Biden is leading. His lead has been cut, but he is still the favorite for South Carolina. And he has very strong polling numbers across the South. Even though he's losing ground to Michael Bloomberg, he still leads with black voters in the South, especially with older black voters, which are his base. Now, if Bloomberg keeps cutting into him, um, that's going to be difficult. But here's my path forward for Joe Biden. If you're Joe Biden campaign and you're looking for a positive thing, you get um, a close second place finish or a strong third place finish ahead of moderate and ahead of Liz Warren coming out of Nevada. You then go and you win in South Carolina, even if it's close. Suddenly you've got delegates on the board. The anti-Bernie vote begins to rally around you. He's able to hit Michael Bloomberg on Bloomberg's uh, racist past with stop and frisk, and he's able to uh, crystallize the uh, the uh, black vote. And he basically, he continues forward with what his campaign was going to be before the defeats in Iowa and New Hampshire, as though those things didn't happen. And he's able to more or less uh, run the table. Um, that's the best case scenario for him. The worst case scenario is that he suffers another loss, a bad loss in Nevada, and then he goes into New uh, into South Carolina. And if he loses in South Carolina to Bernie Sanders, it's over. Joe Biden's campaign is over. Um, if if it's even close, I think he's in a lot of trouble. As for Liz Warren, um, I'll keep this short. I'm not sure she has a route forward. She needed a win or a strong second place in Nevada. The fact that Harry Reid and the Culinary Union haven't come out in support of her suggests to me she might not get it. She might get a very low second place finish in Nevada, but I just, after Nevada, she goes into South Carolina, and I can't see it there. Her campaign is running out of funds. She Her vote is probably going to end up going to Bernie Sanders, and it's just, uh, I, 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 I'm sorry for Warren supporters, but uh, it, it is very grim for that campaign. What happened in New Hampshire is um, a very big negative mark. What do you think, Michael? It, uh, I have to agree with Wally. As a former Warren supporter, it makes me really sad because I do think Warren has a neat, has a kind of unique bridge between kind of the wing of the party Pete Buttigieg represents and the wing of the party Bernie Sanders represents. However, I think the silver lining in this is Something I always thought about in the back of my mind is Elizabeth Warren is an incredibly smart woman. She's an incredibly smart senator. And I think with all due respect, she do, she'll do better work as a senator for a long time than she would as a, as a one or two term president. So I think that's just, you know, food for thought. Same with Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand. Just something quickly to put out there. Joe Biden, I think, has a chance to resuscitate himself, especially in the fact that I think in the past, like, two days, Michael Bloomberg's reputation has taken a real beating, especially on the issue of race. 
we will go more later as as you and Wally have said, but I think that Biden has a chance to kind of restage himself. But I think the biggest thing is he has to bring the thunder. He needs the enthusiasm. He needs the fire that, as one observer noted, animated his vice presidential, you know, campaigning in 2008 and 2012. Where's that Joe Biden, as they said? Because he could win. He was the guy that we were sold on, and he hasn't showed up. But I think that if he did show up, I think that there's still genuine hunger for a moderate candidate. You see that in the support for Amy Klobuchar. You see that, obviously, in Pete Buttigieg's campaign. So I think that if Biden really, you know, just goes all out, you know what I mean, campaigns his heart out, you know, goes door-to-door campaigning kind of thing, and does at the very least well in Nevada, I mean, we remember in 2016, the Clinton campaign tied Iowa, got shellacked in New Hampshire, and barely won Nevada, but they basically— put Clinton in a position to do very well in in South Carolina and then, you know, move forward and eventually win the nomination. So there's path forward for Biden, but I really think it all boils down to, can this guy get voters excited about his campaign or not? I think he can, but he has to show it if he wants to stay in. And as Wally said, I don't see a path for Warren. Unfortunately, I think Bernie, by being electable, has undercut an argument that they, that the left needs a compromise candidate. All right. The Iowa caucuses are well in the rearview mirror, but this is a family-friendly program. Thank they were They were a bleep show. Is Nevada properly prepared to have their own caucus? Some coverage in the media says otherwise. Micah? No, we, we discussed this. We saw that article. I didn't actually read it because I was busy, but basically I just don't trust the caucus system. Like, it clearly is very unwieldy, and if it works, I've already made my issues with the caucus system as being something that I don't think is very democratic. I made those I made those concerns clear last podcast. I think that the fact that they don't work anymore is only a bigger issue. I think that we would all be better served if states, you know, move to primaries, period. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if anyone remembers, but in 2016, the Nevada caucuses were the biggest mess of the primaries. Um, In fact, uh, a large part of the reason why we have had our current mess with the caucuses is because at the Nevada caucuses, um, some very shady uh, backroom stuff went down. And Nevada is even more opaque, even more confusing than Iowa. Um, some very shady backroom stuff went down. Nobody knows quite why, if it was like actually uh, backroom machine politics or if it was just weird, convoluted. Uh, but something happened in the background, and Bernie Sanders lost a very, very narrow vote in something that ended with a lot of his supporters swearing. I know people still, high-ranking people even within the Democratic Party, in Oregon who swear up and down that the Nevada caucuses were rigged. I won't go that far, but at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders the Iowa lost caucuses. a very narrow vote. Uh, no, no, the Nevada one. Oh. Uh, in, 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 in 2016. Um, yeah. And uh, that was where the infamous uh, accusation of Bernie Sanders supporters throwing chairs came from, from the Nevada caucuses. So, uh, so that was last time. Now they have introduced not an app. It's not called an app. They have introduced a tool to report. Much better. Uh, much better, right? Um, so yeah, um, there. Uh, what we're hearing is that people don't understand how the tool works. They don't understand how to input data. Maybe we'll look back on this and think, "Oh, that was so silly. Everything went so fine. Uh, look at this pinnacle of democracy." Um, it's also possible that everything absolutely falls apart because what they need to do now is they need to report more numbers. The caucus system is not designed to actually be democratic or transparent. It's designed. It was designed for machines uh, to be able to hold on to their power. We've since tried to turn them into something democratic and transparent. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it ends like the Iowa caucuses did. Um, I think there is certainly a chance that we see just an absolute mess on uh, caucus night, but I don't think it's possible. I think uh, Nevada hopefully has learned from Iowa's mistakes, and hopefully our worst fears are unfounded, but I don't know. I would be prepared for 
uh, stuff to fall apart. And at the end of the day, caucuses are a ludicrous old-fashioned system that are anti-majoritarian. We really, really should be moving towards primaries. WWE SmackDown Caucus Edition from Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Quickly jumping in, my prediction, I think that things are going to go wrong, but I think that there are going to be more people on hand, and I think that it's possible that we get results quicker because I think that... I don't think that the app... Oh, I'm sorry, the tool will be magically better, but I think that there are going to be more support staff on hand. The Nevada Democratic Party, for what it's worth, like, it's basically run by Harry Reid. I... I trust the guy to basically say, okay, we definitely need backup to make sure that whatever happened in Iowa doesn't happen at least on the same scale here. So uh, my prediction is things go wrong, but there are pe- there are support mechanisms that step in and keep things relatively less chaotic. All right. Quick Nevada predictions. I'm going Bernie. Wally? Um, I will – I'm going to make another bold prediction. My last one went well. Um, I am going to <laughs> say Bernie Sanders – uh, with a narrow victory, uh, with in second place sh- shock finish, Tom Steyer, followed by Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. Tom, this is <laughs> honestly, I was gonna predict. I was gonna predict basically a um, Pete Bernie Klobuchar finish. No, pardon me, Bernie Pete Klobuchar. I think that Bernie has enough, you know, supporters of winning um, to get flat out just the highest number of votes. But I think Bernie and Klobuchar, I think Pete and Klobuchar will still, you know, divide, get enough votes to be in second and third strong. All right. Well, lately, of course, the Democrats have um, dominated the headlines in President Trump's administration. Maybe it's just me, but it seems like a lot of little things have been going on. That's what the mainstream media portrays it, at least. So... This mainstream media is going to continue with that narrative. Let's start. President Trump has criticized his AG, Bill Barr, on Twitter for his handling of the Roger Stone case. Barr later told ABC's George Stephanopoulos that it makes it, quote, impossible to do his job. Is Bill Barr on his way out, Wally? Uh, well, well, first I want to just say uh, thank you, Brody, for saying that uh, me and Micah's opinions are, account as mainstream media. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> I am very honored by this. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I've, I've, made, I've moved up in the world, guys. We made it. Um, hey, but, we have uh, global I, listeners. We do. <laughs> Baffling. Very true. Please, please write in. DM me on Twitter if you're one of our listeners in a foreign country. I just want to know what's going on. Um, but yeah, um, I would say that um, I don't think Bill Barr is going to leave. Uh, I think that I think that this is just a little bit of sort of like trying to present like there's a separation in the Trump administration that there really isn't to try to you know Could kind of give them more. you know d- deniability and stuff. I, I think if Trump ends up dismissing Barr, there's a fallout happening. I think it's purely because of the president having just personal issues of being of just not trusting anyone else because of the current moment. Barr is literally following Trump's agenda and expanding on it to destroy judicial independence. Like, I don't know if you all saw that story. I can't remember it from memory very well, but basically the end result was Barr was more or less ignoring, I believe it was a seventh court of appeals decision. He was ignoring a court order to do something regarding immigration. That's just dangerous. So, like Wallace said, I think he's just presenting right here to basically seem like, oh yeah, there's there's a division. Look at me. I'm so so progressive. I'm so woke. I don't like what the president says on Twitter. But at the end of the day, look at the man's actions. He is Trump's attack dog. Oh, God, I sounded like an MSNBC commentator. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Um, <laughs> what's the best case scenario for Trump's 2020 chances? Uh, you can take that whatever way you want, Micah. He wins. I, I think. Well, of course, of course. But like, of- what's the best case scenario <laughs> on the other side? Strong economy and stuff like that. I think Trump wins the popular vote and the Electoral College in the same way George Bush did in 2004. Just, you know, he can posture that he's looking strong. He has a strong economy thanks to Barack Obama. He, um, I don't know, 
he can run he can run up the idea that oh look at me i'm doing so much make america great again and point out the fact that the democratic party is incompetent which it's like you can't really defend against that because it's true best case scenario i think you know bernie sanders or pete Buttigieg or the other democratic nominee they you know cruise to a um to a victory powered by you know a combination of young people um kind of the remnants of the old democratic new deal coalition you know diverse coalition of um all of all americans young people old people people white people and people of color as well as pro- young progressives and suburbanites who are concerned by trump's behavior i think it's certainly possible that coalition delivered democrats the the house majority in 2018 i think that a democrat and hopefully a democratic party that plays their cards right could certainly capitalize and recreate that for 2020 to hold the house to win the presidency and most importantly take the senate like not to quickly tangent, but like, good lord, we've spent so much needless energy complaining about the presidential race, and frankly, you know what's more important? Controlling the Senate. Just a tangent. We could talk about that in a different episode, but we really should be talking about that more. Key Senate race in North Carolina. There's an article in Politico today about it, so go check that out if you're interested. Wally? I'll take a look. Um, yeah, well, I will say um, here. here's the best case scenario for Republicans uh, and uh, Donald Trump more specifically. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, Donald Trump wakes up the morning after the election um, and looks at the newspapers and he sees uh, Republicans storm to victory. Uh, winning over 400 electoral votes because the Democratic Party is split between uh, one of Michael Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders being the nominee and the other running a third-party campaign. The best possible scenario for Republicans is that the Democrats split over their internal uh, left-right division and that it is a real genuine split, that we get something like we had with the Bull Moose Party, where a third party gets... 15, 20% of the vote just totally decimates Democratic vote totals all across the country. Uh, This would uh, hypothetically allow them to sweep in down ballot races, make the Democrats look disorganized and chaotic. And it's also uh, not an entirely unimaginable scenario. So if I were Donald Trump, I would be doing exactly what he is doing, which is tweeting out things to try to inflame the tensions between Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg. So let's say you guys are Trump on the campaign trail. What is the number one point you're hitting home with your supporters? I think as Trump, I talk about the economy, you know, Again, barring a full economic meltdown like we saw in 2008, Trump can run on this economy. He can talk. He can talk about tax cuts, even though there's, you know, they didn't do anything. He can talk about, oh, look at the jobs report, because at the end of the day, voters reward incumbents when things are going well, and things are going well. To to most people, that's enough. That's enough competency to say, all right, you've earned my vote. For the Democrats, the onus is on them to say, okay. Because, again, so many Democrats' messages, Bernie Sanders in particular, is based on the idea that things aren't going well for the average American. It's on the Democrats. It's on people like Bernie Sanders to prove that and to make that message hit on voters and say, you know what? Things aren't actually that going that well. I want someone else in office. But, again, Trump can just – if he does it right, he can cruise on that. Things going well. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty simple. Um. Uh, Taxes are lower, uh, job rates are up, unemployment is down, uh, trade war is, well, perhaps not one, but I'm sure he could argue to his suburban base that it has been. Uh, we're at war in less countries. Um, and, you know, all, all of these things have huge caveats. If you actually look at the numbers, no, the economy is not like much better for the average American. If you actually look at the numbers, no, trade hasn't improved a ton. If you actually look at the numbers, we're actually getting involved in more conflicts abroad. But if you're a Republican trying to sell the Republican perspective, uh, that's the line you push. Where you, the, the Trump line is because of me, jobs are in. Trade's been trade's better off, and we're at peace. Economy's better. War is less of a threat, and you know that's historically been a pretty winning message. All right, moving on to the index. 
We got two on Mike Bloomberg and one on the coronavirus. Mike Bloomberg will reportedly consider Hillary Clinton as his running mate should he win the Democratic nomination and uh, reported by the Drudge Report. So, you know, you could take as much as you want with that, but it's a fun hypothetical for us media types to discuss. Wally? Mike Bloomberg represents the uh, most reactionary edge of the liberal restorationists. He is the uh, he is the emblematic uh, symbol of the uh, portion of the Democratic Party that is willing to abandon um, any moral leanings uh, and any political um, causes in order to remove Donald Trump. And it seems fitting that he would be connected to uh, Hillary Clinton and her restoration to political power as well. Although I don't know if he would be that foolish. At the end of the day, this is a politics of undoing Trump's populism and the most crass and uh, I, I, I'll go so far to say it, uh, unjust and um, undemocratic way. I, I heard on Twitter that this is not true, thankfully. I think it would just represent how out of touch Michael Bloomberg is. I think that if he actually were considering it, I think it would people should take it as, regardless of everything else we're about to talk about Bloomberg, just an absolute indictment of this guy doesn't know what the Democratic Party is feeling. And the general feeling is that Hillary Clinton should not be anywhere near this election in any way, shape, or form. Again, I love Hillary Clinton. I think she's a trailblazer. I think she's an incredibly smart woman. But I think she's our modern John Adams, and as such, should stay away from the campaign trail at all costs. All right, the next Mike Blumberg one. Uh, Got to ask you guys to drink a little truth serum here. You may tell the you know, it may be the truth, but I want to make sure you're not answering this one biased in a biased way. Are committed Dems, gotcha. not the Bernie bros, afraid of the prospects of Mike Bloomberg's candidacy? I'd say so. Like, the guy, in all fairness, you can say what you will about, oh, he's just buying the race. In all fairness, he's not buying people's votes. Yes, he's buying exposure, but as, you know, to use an old example, as Michael Forbes saw when he, you know, spent to run, I believe, for either mayor of New York or governor of New York, money alone doesn't buy you votes. Bloomberg is genuinely appealing to a large section of the Democratic electorate, and the fact that he's in, what, third place nationally, when someone like Pete Buttigieg, who, you know, has been campaigning for, you know, a solid year and actually has risen in the polls naturally is only in fourth or fifth place. That's genuinely unnerving to a lot of people who see the, especially people who see the biggest issue in our political system today as being money in politics. The fact that someone could just, you know, dump a boatload of ad money in and sweep to near the top of the polls. That's unnerving, especially in the party that is supposed to be against that. And I, I empathize with that concern. As the uh, resident uh, Bernie bro, I will say I, I am absolutely terrified of Mike Bloomberg's candidacy. I don't know if he will be able to win, but I do know that if he were able to win, it would set a precedent where it is only rich billionaires of conservative stature who are able to participate in our democracy, which would effectively make it not a democracy at all. It would upend the possibility for electoral transformations to make the world a better place, and it would drive a lot of people to cynicism, a lot more people to radicalism. I'm not entirely sure that he would beat Donald Trump. I'm not sure whether he would be a better president than Donald Trump, but I know as a fact that we we cannot have a democracy that is run only by billionaires and funded only by their wealth. That cannot function, it cannot endure, and our country and our party could not survive that. And frankly, if we are a country and if we are a party that can only nominate billionaires, I'm not sure we would deserve to survive in our present state. So I, I, I am quite nervous, and I hope... Uh, I hope that Bloomberg isn't the nominee, and I am not sure I could bring myself to vote for something that would effectively be handing over once and for all our democracy to the billionaires and aristocrats. All right. Thank you for the very uh, clear answers there. And lastly, as the coronavirus spreads across the world, the World Health Organization has faced criticism for their handling of the disease. Wally? Um, well, it's it's quite nerve-wracking. I'll concede to not really understanding um, how pandemics work and how 
diseases spread and all that, but um, I, I'm nervous. I, um, I, I hope everyone afflicted with it uh, gets better soon. And it is, um, you know, this has always been a concern of mine. I don't know whether it's just fueled by apocalyptic movies and the like, or whether it's genuinely rooted um, in reality. Um, but um, I do hope, uh, I do hope things get under uh, control soon. Um, thankfully for y'all, I take global infectious diseases intro to microbiology, so I do know about pandemics, but I'm not going to talk about that because this is the index. But I do know a, a little bit about the criticism the World Health Organization has received, and it relates to basically being too compliant with letting China manage the response itself. And I think from what I can see, the fact that, again— I read a New York Times headline that said that I think Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders knew about the virus well before they started talking about it in public. And I think if they knew, it's likely that they had conversations with the World Health Organization. And if I remember correctly, the criticism boiled down more or less to the WHO was too willing to basically listen to China's concerns that, oh, if we you know start taking concerns now, we'll take an economic hit and stuff like that. I think that the World Health Organization should be more willing to say in the case of a potential pandemic, look, here's the standard procedure for how for how to deal with these things at an international level. Here's how we're going to do things. I think that yes, China has made, you know, remarkable strides in dealing with the virus, you know, building hospitals in mere days and such, but if they really were willing to, you know, if the government was really you know, waiting to try to take on the virus or publicly take on the virus in a way that allowed for global coordination just because they were concerned about their reputation. That's not the most important thing in the case of, you know, a global pandemic. And I think that the World Health Organization should be willing to lay down the law that all countries, whether you're the United States or China, have to follow standard procedures for dealing with global health pandemics. All right. Good index. Moving on to the state of liberal democracy post-Brexit. Two weeks ago, Britain left the European Union, but the full force of the effect will only be known after trade deals are completed next year. Is the EU in danger of losing more members, Wally? Um, well, I think the Brexit process dissuaded a lot of people from wanting to leave the European Union. Uh, strong exception to this is Italy, where um, the uh, far-right uh, league is um, leading most polls and can only be kept out of power by a very tenuous coalition of uh, the populist Five Star and the uh, Liberal Democratic Party of the area. Um, I think that uh, Italy is probably the most likely to leave the European Union if someone else does. But I do think that the hyperbolic predictions of the results of Brexit, something I will freely concede to having been guilty of uh, as well, um, perhaps may lead people to think that uh, leaving the European Union actually isn't that big of a deal. And it's quite concerning because the European Union has, for all its faults, and I am strongly critical of it, I'm not a proponent of free trade, for all its faults, it has presided over the longest era of peace in Western Europe in world history. Um, and I just um, – I, I would hate to see these countries pitted against each other and I'd hate to see the consequences of having these countries pitted against each other. Um, but uh, – I do think it's quite possible. It's not likely uh, that it'll be too many countries, but I would not at all rule it out that we will see more exits within the next decade. I think we see more exits from the European Union if the European Union does not fundamentally reform itself to deal with issues. I think the biggest issue I would note is just the fact that I think it's safe to say the single currency has not worked out in the way countries thought it would, or at the very least, the the policies of austerity, very much enforced by the European Central Bank, do not work well from country to country. What work, what has worked economically well in, say, Germany, for example, does not work econo economically well in Greece. And I think that if the EU wants to survive, they're going to basically, they need to be more flexible in terms of letting individual countries manage their own economic issues, because, again, the one-size-fits-all economic approach has not worked and has created a fair amount of strife across Europe. So 
I think that if that issue is not resolved, I think regardless of how strenuous the Brexit process will say, every every nation's populace is going to say, well, that was just the Brits. That's how they did things. We are going to be different. And if the problems remain, you know, the incent- the impetus to leave, the incentive to leave is still there. So I think the EU is a great institution, but it needs to adapt to survive. It hasn't it hasn't adapted well, and if it doesn't, it will lose more members. And Grant Kramp Karenbauer, I hope I got that name correct, expected successor of German Chancellor Angela Merkel resigned unexpectedly this week. Her fall was part of the growing crisis stemming from the far right, helping to form a local government in the state of Thuringia. Again, I hope I got that right. I tried to study these, but we'll see. Can the center-right hold on against far-right pressure, Wally? Oh, boy. Um, Well, the right coming to power in Germany is uh, a terrifying thing. And for those of you who don't know, what's happened here is in this German state, which I did not look up the pronunciation of despite writing it into the script, um, in this German <laughs> state, um, the uh, the uh, the ruling government was of uh, the left party, which is a descendant of the East German Communist Party. Uh, it is the most you know, the most left-wing major party in Europe. Um, and it was then forced out of government by um, the cooperation of the center-right Christian Democrats and the far-right alternative for G- Germany um, and the liberal centrist FDP, who are the ones who were put into power. I think this is what should really concern people, is that the liberal centrists... Co- Organizations like the FDP, um, organizations like uh, the centrist party in Spain have shown just as much, if not more, of a willingness to cooperate with fascists even than the center-right, which is also being dragged towards fascists um, or towards far-right organizations. Um, and this this uh, should remind us that uh, part of the problem um, – with uh, stopping the rise of the far right is parties that prioritize economic liberalism over social liberalism. Um, and I, I, I am not a liberal, um, but I, I recognize some of the great advances forward that liberalism has made and even neoliberalism has made in the cultural field. Um, but when people become too focused on this idea of free trade as the supreme overwhelming freedom – and uh, think that all else pales in comparison to it, they are willing to side with the far right over even moderate leftism, let let alone far leftism. In a populist age, we are going to need to be willing to embrace, at the very least, drastic social democratic and populist reforms to the economy. And if we don't make them, we are going to see liberals, we are going to see conservatives, we are going to see centrists willing to side with the far right to stop the left. Um, So... uh, I, I, I suppose to wrap up, I will say uh, all across Europe, the center-right is being decayed and eroded by conservatism. The center-right is thoroughly discredited by its acceptance of neoliberalism and austerity. And I'm not sure that there is a route forward for the center-right. I think if you're interested in stopping fascism, if you're interested in stop, stopping the new brand of right-wing nationalism we're seeing represented by Orban, and by AFD and by Vox in Spain and by the League, you have to be willing to embrace more dramatic reforms to government and to society. Um, Either you concede to these people or you fight them on every front. And I don't think the right is capable of fighting them on every front. Uh, um, All right, I'm going to talk on a couple of fronts. I think it's first important to recognize that in Germany, I believe the most popular party currently is the Green Party, a really unique, I believe, left of center or leftist party that's very focused on the threat of climate change that's being posed. And we all know that for them, climate change is just the vector. It's just the nexus of a lot of issues because climate change touches income inequality. It touches social issues like immigration. It really is a it's a frame of mind to talk about a lot of issues. And Green has the Greens have seized on that. They did well not only in Germany but in other countries across Europe during the European elections. 
So I think that centrism isn't so much dying as is these old center-left, center-right parties are decaying because they haven't adapted with the times. I think that if centrism wants to survive, I think we need to look at, for example, the Christian Democratic Union, the German center-right party that Merkel is a part of. I saw an article that basically pointed out that one of the issues is that Merkel has had increasing trouble trying to deal with her right flank of the party. Merkel is actually closer to the, you know, the almost the left wing of her center-right party. She's, you know, fairly liberal on social issues. She's a moderate on economic issues. But her party is being tilted rightward because its party members are at the at the end of the party are fairly socially conservative. I think that there's there is room for the, you know, the kind of the mystic, economically economically conservative but socially liberal party in Europe. But I think that what it needs is it needs rebranding. It needs for the people for the for the more liberal members of the center rightist party, the people like Merkel, and the members of the social democratic party, and the more rightist members of you know social historically social democratic parties like the social democrats in Germany to just jump ship and make their own party because there they have an unmuddled message they can make a clear you know clarion call for okay we are we stand for economic neoliberalism we stand for free trade and we stand for social we stand for social liberties and those people that w- that want to see those policies enacted can vote for that party while other parties like the greens and the social democrats can focus on okay we're offering a more social a more progressive a more socially leftist message on the economy in addition to social liberties we are focusing on climate change we are focusing on our social conservatism because i think at the end of the day the fact that parties i think that the social conservatism of the of the kind of the the right wing of center rightist parties allows for them to cooperate more easily with parties like alternative for germany although you know of course the I think it's worth saying that the Five Star Movement is weird, but the fact that they cooperated with the Far Right League offers some very scary ideas of you know left leftist and rightist populist populist collaborating that Wally and I discussed at one point. But I think that at the end of the day, centrists have a future in Europe, and frankly in America, they just need to rebrand because at the current moment, all that's happened is these historical parties are being almost torn at their seams by the by the centrist in the party and the people at the wings of those parties okay and finally irish nationalism is on the rise when seen fine winning a quarter of seats in parliament how likely are we to see an independent scotland and a united ireland and what consequences would that have wally uh yeah so Today in class, uh, in my World War One history class, we were talking about the Easter Rising, um, and they put up a map of uh, Sinn Féin uh, uh, winning the 1918 uh, election. I was like, oh, geez, that looks exactly uh, like the map today. Um, so we should put the caveat here. Um, the uh, Sinn Féin has won uh, in large part because of issues unrelated to uh, Irish nationalism. They have won because of the failure of uh, Fianna Fáil and uh, Fáin Gael, uh, I believe that's how they're pronounced, uh, the ruling center-right parties to address the housing issue. Uh, and uh, the uh, Tausiak, uh, <laughs> again, I, I hope that's pronounced correctly, uh, Leo Verdacher, um, who uh, has... has uh, come across as um, unconcerned and um, disconnected to the issues average people are facing. Um, Now, we should recognize that um, Sinn Féin actually uh, only ran 40 candidates in this race, and some 30 of them won. They only ran them because they had lost badly in uh, down-ballot races and council races um, in the years preceding, so they wanted to mitigate the possibility of damage. Well, instead, they've gone and um, won an incredible resounding victory, uh, gotten their best uh, result in Ireland in decades and centuries even. Um, In fact, it might even be since the modern formation of uh, the party as it's currently constituted, it is, I believe, their best result ever. Um, And uh, we'll see what they do with it. We'll see if they're able to get into government or whether there is a new election. But at the end of the day, um, I think 
people have forgotten. Young people have forgotten the troubles. Young people who voted overwhelmingly for them have forgotten the troubles, have forgotten or, or never, never lived through the IRA, never lived through the bombings. And when they reflect on this, they, they reflect on the negative aspects of the Ulster Unionist movement of uh, you know they they think that they can they conflate and perhaps not wrongly the atrocities committed by the British government and Bloody Sunday to the atrocities committed by the IRA and they aren't concerned they aren't threatened they aren't dissuaded by this label terrorist supporting in large part because of the same thing that has happened in America with communism and socialism where people aren't afraid of these labels when they're applied so many dozens of times to every social democratic or leftist policy and finally they start just tuning people out um with that said, what is more interesting even than this victory is that we saw in the latest UK election, a majority of Northern Irish parliamentary seats went to uh, went to Republicans, went to people who want a united Ireland. Now, as we are seeing, uh, we've seen Catholicism collapse as a force in Ireland, which has led to their liber liberalization. We've seen Protestantism collapse as a force of politics in Ulster, where, you know, across the world, people are becoming less and less connected to their religious uh, affiliations. And what we're seeing is uh, people in Northern Ireland feel less ties to the United Kingdom, especially after a Brexit process that's kind of thrown them under the butt. Depending on how Brexit goes, I think it is entirely possible that we see a United Ireland. And given the age split we see within support for a united Ireland. If young people continue to support a united Ireland at the same level they currently do, well, as the older generation dies off and younger voters become a larger voting bloc, I think it's entirely possible. As for Scotland, um, I think the United Kingdom might have already lost Scotland. I think Brexit has dissuaded Scots who voted overwhelmingly against that. There was already a strong Scottish independence movement. The SNP is probably the party that came out of Brexit with the most credit. I think at the end of the day, we might finally be seeing the dissolution of the United Kingdom. So I don't, I don't know a whole ton about, you know, the internal politics of Ireland. I think my speculation is on Sean Finn, Sinn Féin. I, I also cannot pronounce these names to save my life. Winning in Ireland and Republicans winning in Northern Ireland. I think the, the troubles and the, the terrorism of the IRA, they happened, I think, now over a generation ago. The Good Friday, um, the Good Friday peace accords were signed in 1998. So that's, you know, literally 22 years ago. So people who, you know, young voters who are jumping into, the, you know, are voting for the first time, they don't remember that. They weren't born then. And even people who were kids during, you know, who were born during the 90s, though, those weren't memories that they had to live through in the same way that older voters did. So I think that, you know, they don't have those memories when they think about, you know, Irish nationalism or these Republican parties. And I think, as Wally noted, you know, the the the, the liberalization of both societies and the and the kind of collapse of like the longstanding religious kind of orthodoxies in those countries, I think, also off kind of de-stresses the environment to an extent, making it kind of seem like choosing republicanism is let you know it isn't like oh my goodness it's you know lighting a fire you know lighting a you know a powder keg, for it's more just works it's more people expressing their support for the parties they think. They think best represent them. I think that, I think that the time, I would say time and the change, the change in societal in the societal context has essentially made it mo seemingly more, made it less less of a um a dire proposition to vote for a Republican Party in both countries. Okay. I think it's Scotland. I think I don't know that. What is that? It. Um. Oh no! I was just gonna note with with Scotland. I think you know, I don't know if they're gonna if they're gonna you know de try to um, declare independence. I think, you know, they had a lot of momentum going into the 2014 vote before Brexit, but I think it's before you know they voted to remain. But I think in the aftermath of Brexit and depending on how this term of Boris Johnson's goes, 
I think it's very likely that we, at the very least, get another independence vote. I don't, I can't say I know how it's going to go, though. Okay. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I want to give a shout out to the fine folks at ESPN and the St. Pete Clearwater Invitational down in Florida. My cowgirls went 4-1 in the tournament. And ESPN put every single game on some point of television, whether it was ESPN3 or the actual, as they call, linear networks, which is real cable TV. Um, just a spectacular job by everyone involved to get softball games on national television in the second week of February is remarkable and obviously grows the sport. Had a great game last night between UCLA and Florida State. Again, I say it on the top of the mountain. If you watch a college softball game, I promise you, you will be entertained. So thanks to everyone involved down there and cowgirls keep rolling. Wally, what do you have? Um, well, I have a book recommendation. Um, I am reading uh, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher, um, who is um, a, w- who was a uh, political theorist, um, a, a very modern one. He died just in 2017. Um, and I'm simply uh, stunned by the clarity and uh, strength of the writing. I think it, it's obviously a left-wing book, but I think really people of all political persuasion might find it interesting or at least engaging. Um, and I'll close with the uh, the last uh, couple of lines uh, in the book, which I found really inspiring. Um, the tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction, which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism. From a situation in which nothing can happen, suddenly anything is possible again. Uh, I, I really think um, if you're interested in um, really anything relating to modernity, um, you should try and check the book out. It's very short, um, and um, I found it inspiring um, and incredibly uh, interesting to read. Um, my main story is college break day happened on Friday and I, this last Friday, and I can really say it was really, it was a really refreshing experience to just be able to sleep in on a Friday, get a chance to just essentially get a chance to recharge, kind of just recharge, reload, and then move on with getting work done. It was, I had not been sleeping super well for the past week just because, you know, I've had a lot of work to do. So it was really nice. And if I can make a recommendation, I think that we should have like, you know, like five of those per year because they are very, they are very nice. All right. Yeah. I've got to sneeze. One second. All right. I think I got it now. Bless you. Thank you. Um, guys, thank you for joining us on this President's Day, but I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And OSU did not get out today. I don't know about you guys. I think you were both in school, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Well, again, thank you for tuning in and thank you for listening. This has been One Whole Revolution, episode 22.